This is episode number 201, Allison Dazier and Amir Figueroa on Running for Social Change. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. This is why so many of us are fighting for representation, because I know for a fact that had he not looked the way he looked, had he not been another black person, that it wouldn't have hit home with me, right? So it's important to have representation of folks across all the outdoor industries. Like we are out here doing these things. It's just that we don't often get the platforms or as much shine as other folks doing it. I'm super pumped that you guys are hanging out with us today. And if you're new to the podcast, a big warm welcome. Thank you so, so much for the messages that you guys have been sending me about the podcast. It definitely helps keep me going and you're keeping me motivated and excited to keep pushing on. And this podcast is such a gift to me and it is such an honor to get the opportunity to talk to so many incredible people. And it helps me stay inspired every single week. I just want to take a minute to check in with you guys. How are you guys doing? This year has been absolutely insane. There's been a lot of things that have happened in the world. And I heard something on a radio show, and it was something to the effect of after the plague came the Renaissance. So there is a lot of changes happening in the world, changes for positive. But change is not an easy place to be. And a lot of times, change can bring up anxiety and discomfort. And when you feel anxious, looking for things that you can control and focusing on those instead of all the things that you can't control makes you feel a lot better. So for COVID, for example, we can't control a lot of the things that are happening, but we can control where we choose to go, how we social distance, if we wear masks. And just so you know, again, masks are to protect other people from you. They don't really protect you from people who aren't wearing masks that are carrying the disease. So making sure that you're still following all the protocols with COVID because it's not gone yet. And in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, this is so huge, so powerful, and in some ways overwhelming. And it's overwhelming in a good way because now there is so much education out there and so many things that we can be learning to be better and to be anti-racist. So to feel better about that, you can be educating yourself and putting into practice the things that you think are important. And another thing people have been asking me is they're asking how to stay motivated whenever their events have been canceled in terms of sports. So like a running race or a bike race, how do you stay motivated to train? And a quick tip for that is to set goals that have nothing to do with the race. Set goals for yourself so that you can go test yourself. Or maybe your goal is just to show up every day and do 15 minutes because sometimes whenever you're not feeling motivated, getting started is the hardest part. And I know for myself personally, for the last week, I've been struggling with a little bit of burnout. I've been putting a crazy amount of pressure on myself postpartum to get back into being race fit. And I love it. But I realized that I was taking it so seriously. And so the last week, I've just been emotionally exhausted from trying to do everything and take care of a baby. So I'm giving myself a little bit of a break. And if I don't feel like riding after 15 minutes, I turn around and go home. And show up has been one of my mantras. Keep showing up for yourself. Keep showing up for the things that are important to you. Because the habit of showing up is one of the most important things you can do. 
but also being aware that if you are feeling burned out to take a break, go do something different for a day or a week, but get right back and start showing up again whenever you feel better. I did an Instagram post recently talking about why I named my apparel brand Moxie and Grit. And I was brainstorming to think about the words that were key to doing hard things. And what were the things to me that got me through really hard 100 mile or seven day mountain bike races? What were the things that helped get me through life's hardest challenges that I've experienced? And the two words that sifted to the top were moxie and grit. And moxie is force of character, determination, nerve. It could also be characterized as energy and pep. And grit is courage and resolve and strength of character. So next time things get hard, think about having moxie and grit. Think about just the idea that you can keep going. Think about the idea that a lot of times the things that we focus on become our reality. So if you're focusing on how everything is so hard or how you're not motivated or how everybody seems to be doing more than you, that's not going to help you. Start focusing on things that are going to actually be useful to you, things that are positive, things that are helpful, things that are inspiring and not things that make you feel less than. Okay, so let's get into this week's guests, Alison Desir and Amir Figueroa. And these two are absolutely incredible and inspiring individuals. And I highly recommend doing more than just listening to this podcast if this is the first time you've ever heard of both of them. There's so much great content they've created out there. And once you start going in, you keep going further and further down their amazing rabbit hole and you just want to stay there. Alison Desir and Amir Figueroa are on a mission for social change. The two individually found their love of running. Amir's father died of HIV when Amir was just four years old. And Allison was struggling with depression and some very hard life challenges with a bad breakup, a very sick father. And from there, they found running through seeing others lead by example. And this is so important, leading by example, because we are inspiring people that we don't even realize. So Amir saw a friend with HIV walk a marathon and raise money for Harlem United. And he thought, wow, that person walked 26.2 miles. I can do that. And Allison saw a friend on social media who was a black man training for a marathon and felt empowered to do it too. And now leading by their own examples is changing the world. Before they met, Amir and Allison started their own running groups to build community in Harlem and met because of a similar hashtag they were using on social media. And after they met, they decided to join forces. And not only did they join forces, but they ended up getting married and having a beautiful baby boy named Corey about a year ago. For Allison and Amir, it's not just about running. It's not just about having a running club. It's about running for social change to create diversity and leadership in communities. Walkers, joggers, runners of all ages and abilities, and people from all different backgrounds show up for Harlem Run evenings. I got to speak with Amir and Allison individually. Amir is a Boston Marathon finisher, an ultra runner, he's quite fast, and a senior researcher at Columbia University. Amir and I chatted about his new foray into fatherhood and what that means to him since he lost his father at such a young age. We also talked about running with purpose, the power of vulnerability and good communication, and how the grit and life lessons from ultra running can empower us in daily life, especially with all the challenges in 2020. We also talked about COVID and his research at Columbia University. And Allison, Allison Desir was named by Women's Running as one of the top 20 women who are changing the sport of running. 
Her father nicknamed her Powdered Feet to describe her as someone so active that you never see them. She is doing so many impactful projects and is a strong voice for women's rights and people of color. She also has not one, but two master's degrees. We talked about the importance of being a voice for others, how Harlem Run continues to be an inclusive group that attracts all different types of people, a few of her incredible advocacy projects, and she has more than we even talked about in this podcast. The topic of gender constructs when it comes to raising children, and this has been something that's been on my mind as well, and running as a vehicle for social change. Both of these incredible guests have given us some really good resources, so I highly encourage you to check out the resources section in the show notes and sign up for free for Allison's Meaning Through Movement seminar series. There's a bunch of different ones. I'm signed up for all of them and they go through September. If you're loving the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button or leave us a comment. We love reviews and my team and I love reading them because they just make us feel so stoked that you guys are enjoying the show. And if you'd like to support our work on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And all of your very generous donations go to paying for the production of this show. And my audio engineer, Roma, has been with me since episode one, making sure that this sounds amazing in your earbuds. And last, I have a free weekly newsletter. Just go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter and you can sign up where I share my best tips and the weekly podcast to help keep you stoked and help you be inspired every single Friday. All right, let's get into today's episode with Amir and Allison. Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sonia. It was pretty awesome. Yesterday, I read on ProKit, it was the dads and sport feature, and I read your responses, and they were incredibly well thought out and very articulate, and I was really impressed. Oh, thank you. I was really grateful for that feature. And I mean, there's so many great dads, so it's an honor. Yeah, I guess I'll start with being a dad. What what has that been like for you? And how has your identity or just adding that into your identity change your perspective of the world? I mean, the one thing that's really changed me because, I mean, it takes me back to so much because, you know, so I grew up, for those who don't know me, like uh, my father passed when I was four years old due to complications with HIV. So I've literally gone my whole life not having it, like the majority of my life not having a dad. Um, this year I turned, what, 36 and um, just a long time. I mean, I'm grateful for like a lot of male mentors and stuff. But now I just think it takes me back to a lot of the stuff my father kind of went through because uh, he was an intravenous drug user. And as I've talked to different people on my father's side of the family, I've learned so much about him, a lot of things he struggled with. And so it kind of like now being a father, oh, so many things, so many layers of things that you deal with as a parent. And so like for me, I find the time to just breathe. I mean, thank God I've been introduced to stuff like mindfulness and running. These are, I mean, I have so many practices that I use to really help me calm down, stay present and like not lose my cool because, I mean, I've had like traumas in my family. And so there's so many opportunities for me to be angry and enraged. And I've, I did that as a child. And so now being a father, I just remind myself, just calm down. And I really, I think about my son, I think about my wife and I want to be the best man that I can be for them both. So uh, it starts with me and then everything else flows out from after that. 
Yeah, there's a book. I'm, I'm not done reading it yet, but it's called, you probably heard of it. It's called Conscious Parenting. And it's just about how, for people that aren't familiar, about how kids actually are teachers for you, not just you being the teachers for the kids and how it's such a great opportunity to learn how you are sort of putting your own things on the kid and it's not fair to the kid. But we all have exactly. our own traumas from growing up that we have to be aware of. Exactly. Most definitely. What was that like growing up? I mean, what like what was your, your life like growing up? Well, so when I was 11 months old, my mom actually moved to the West Coast to kind of get away from my father because they just were going through their whole disputes. Just as parents were separated and my pops was dealing with a lot. And then so I was on the West Coast from when I was like right before one until maybe eight or nine. Um, and in between that span, my mom, she's like, yo, you have to move and live with somebody with a stable environment because she was a single parent trying to raise three kids. It was me wow. and I have an older and a younger sister. Exactly. She was working three jobs. Wow. Um, and I actually found out like recently that my mom, she was a legal secretary. Oh, what else was she doing? She was selling jewelry and go and think about this. She was making flyers for the ladies at the strip club. And I was like, yeah, why did you, how did you never tell me this? He never told me that until I was like older. And I was like, I wouldn't have been ashamed. I'm like, that's awesome. And that's another thing. I was like, yo, you making flyers uh, for people who are doing like something to get money, like their livelihood, like that's what's up. And yo, she was working three jobs. So I never, I have just a whole different perspective. Much respect for my mom's being a parent and going through all of that. But after nine, I moved to New York City. And that's, I mean, I've been in New York ever since. Because uh, that's just a life was like for me. I grew up in the South Bronx. And after living with my uncle and my aunt, I moved to Riverside when my mom moved back. Went to college upstate New York. And ever since I, since I graduated college, I've been in Harlem. So it's been a lot. You know, so many experiences of just, you know, feeling like I'm alone. You know, especially not having a dad. You know? But having people in my corner, which is awesome, but having all these struggles, like I didn't know how to share things. So I used to bottle things up all the time. And that's why it's great having met Allison because I mean, she's like a mental health counselor. So she's really giving me, I listen to, we had so many great conversations a lot. And I talk a lot about my trauma. And I mean, to be honest, through my own journeys with mental health therapy, I've grown a lot, learned a lot about my life and how, you know, and been able to transform myself. And I really look forward to continue that journey and to transform my family, especially now and having a son. And he no longer has to go, hopefully, you know, he doesn't have to go through the same things I've gone through, you know, so. Yeah. And how did you find running? Oh, man. Uh, running. So what was that? 20, well, 2009, I was working with a good friend of mine who was an HIV AIDS activist. At the time, she was like 50 and she was living with HIV AIDS. She told me, oh, I do the New York City Marathon and, and I walk it. I was like, what? You walk it? And I was like, well, if you can walk, I can run. Um, and she was like, yeah, help me raise money for a local charity. And so uh, I joined on her running team and it was uh, Harlem United. We were raising money for this uh, nonprofit in Harlem called Harlem United, which at the time they were you know, mainly doing work with people who were living or affected with um, HIV and AIDS. Now, since then, they've kind of brought in that scope to help a lot of people. Um, but at the time, that's how I got into it. And literally... The furthest I've run was like maybe, what, eight, nine miles. So I just started training for it. And then 2010 was when I ran New York City Marathon was like my first ever like race. Wow. That's a big one. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I had an amazing experience. And so that's what got me into running. And since then, I've been, I've been running ever since. And 
running is a very transformational sport. And I actually found my foray, I'm an endurance cyclist, but I found my way into endurance sports through marathon running as well when I was 18. And wow. I remember just learning so much about myself and finding confidence. And, and I actually feel like running is something really important for mental health for a lot of people. Is that sort of where you started sort of shaping your identity into who you wanted to be? Or did that come later? I guess that definitely came later. I think because so for me, my why was like paramount when it came to running. So my why was uh, because of this transformational experience out of my pain, right? The pain of losing my father due to complications of HIV and AIDS. And I've always been like a peer counselor, peer educator, focused on bringing awareness. And but then also on the other side, doing the research. I know like because I got my bachelor's degree in biotechnology and I was like, because losing my pops, that's what pushed me into science. But then being in the sciences, I was like, wait, there's this other part of it that also need to play a part in it. That was that the stuff that's going on in the community because the science wasn't enough. There's so much stuff. Like most of the stuff that when it comes to the scientific stuff, people aren't even aware of. Just because, to be honest, if you're not interested in reading journal articles and all this published material in science and research, there's so much you can miss. And, but there's another part, even a scientist aren't even aware of, that happens in the communities. And so having both knowledge of what goes on in the community and in the lab, I think that sets me apart from a lot of people because not many people have both sides. And I love having that duality because, I mean, I just have the full scope of something that's deadly, but how we can change it. And so whenever I have conversation with people, um, I know how to switch it up and speak to whatever it is that people, whatever questions people may have. Yeah. And I read you're a senior researcher at Columbia and you've also been doing some work with COVID. So yeah. sort of taking what you just said, like some people don't seem to be taking it seriously enough and you've seen firsthand the science and trying to find a way to come up with a vaccine. Yeah. So how would you explain to people that aren't taking it seriously that it is something to be careful about? Uh, I mean, it's, it, this is so hard. So for me, and that's the other thing that's changed with my perspective is like, one, I'm a dad now. If I was a single guy, like I would be out at these protests and these march, these marches and trying to organize and motivate people and mobilize. But knowing that I have a family, like that's the thing that comes first. And I don't want to put them at risk. So being outside, that puts me at risk, especially there's so many people who aren't wearing masks. And I would just encourage people to just stay up to date with the research. Like, yo, there's so many states who have currently been opened up and they've been seeing a spike. It's like an uptick. And if that's happening there, what makes you think that won't happen here? And it's not to say like, so, and again, there's like so many, it's, it's nuanced, right? Because the current time that we're in, it's like a lot of black and brown people being murdered in the streets. So is people, if they're going out and protesting, I have no problem with them wanting that, like, yo, that's a risk I would be willing to take. You have the right and you should be marching, making your voice be heard and forget, like, just as long as you're wearing a mask, that's, uh, you can protest and march and also be safe at the same time. But at the same, on the other hand, like, if you don't have a goal in mind, there's so many different ways you can be a part of what's going on and just keeping things virtually. Your resources may be financial. You might be able to link people together. It's so many different ways. And I think we need to be creative and not forget that 
COVID-19 is still present. Um, yeah, there's no vaccine and there's no therapy. And it like, cause what I've been working on, it will probably be like more of a therapeutic a- agent. And I, I'm excited to share the research that we have done. I can't say it yet, but we're currently like submitting stuff. So I'm excited once it gets, gets out there, I'll be able to share that with people. But yeah, it's out here alive and well. And look, Brazil is a country, they just recently hit a million people infected with the coronavirus. And so it's still here. It's around the world. And we just need to be patient, especially in particular, like New York City. We're starting to open up in phases. So, and that's why I remind people to pay attention to these phases. So like, for example, phase four includes arts, entertainment, and recreation, which recreation would be outdoor running. And so for us, we're starting to have these conversations. What would that look like to start having our group runs again? But until that point, we're going to keep everything virtual. Yeah. And let's talk about Harlem Run now. Like, how did you and your wife form it? And what what's the purpose? Yeah. So Allison started in 2013. I didn't meet her until 2014. So she was using the hashtag Harlem Run. And I was using the hashtag We Run Harlem. She used found my hashtag via Instagram. And she was like, hey, can I join you on a run? I was like, yeah, cool. And so after that time, I was like, I met her and went to her run. And I was like, this would be silly of us to have two separate groups. So I had a long email list, like I'm sure she did. I emailed everybody on my list. I was like, hey, listen, from this point on, we're going to Harlem Run. And that's and that's how it was. So the thing was, I, one, I, I knew I was a leader and I didn't need to just be where I was at. Like, So I was like, what stood out to me more was being a part of something bigger. And it didn't matter. Like, I didn't need to be the founder. And I was like, yo. Allison has started her own thing. I'm down here. I'm a leader. I know what it takes to lead a group. Let me bring my skill set to this group. And that's what I did. So one of the things that I brought was like the walking component because she didn't have that yet. And that's what I think really transformed what we were doing because it came, became a movement. And that's the, like, the language we used. It wasn't a running club. It wasn't a running crew. Like we just, the way we, we, we described it was as a running movement. Basically, the purpose of it is just empowering people to, to get fit. Like, look, we're in the midst of a global pandemic where, I mean, even healthy people um, are at risk. But, I mean, who's to say, like, more research needs to be done. But if you're in shape, like, if you have strong lungs, you have a strong immunity, you might be able to fight this off. So, again, that's the whole point. We want to be able to combat a lot of things in, in our community. And a lot of it usually starts with just getting people outdoors and moving. And so that's what we do. Um, our goal is just empower urban communities and everybody outside of that just to, to get fit. And can you talk about diversity in the outdoors, especially in endurance sports? Because in cycling, it's a lot of white people. Like skiing's a lot of white people. Running seems to be a lot of white people. And it's really awesome to see. And it's really important to see people from different groups doing the same sports. Also, so people can see themselves in you so that they feel like they belong too. So can you talk yes. about that? So, I mean, it all depends on people's relationships to it, right? And, and access. Like if you're at a school who never had enough funding for like sports, um, then you probably didn't have like a hockey team or a, a, a track team um, or all these other kind of athletic sports. And so I think that's one point of it, depending on schools that people come from it being raised in that. So they were never introduced to it. I mean, they've never seen anybody do it. They've probably never had people in their families do it. And so diversity is huge, is really huge, especially in like seeing people who look like you in it. 
Um, and that's why I really enjoy like us running through the streets is very like that's impactful because people see us like, oh, my God, where y'all running? Who y'all running from? And it's like, listen, we're just running to stay in shape. And like you can always join us. And that's why it's great because people see us and they like then they can see themselves doing it. Um, and so us being who we are and what we do, like we have a leadership of well, one. We had a, a founder who was a, a powerful woman of color. And then our leadership was compromised of mostly women. And we have like a few men. And even in that, we always have conversations of how can we open up like, and invite more people into leadership or ways in which we can pull people closer. And again, it's like we pull more women, uh, people who are bi POC, people who are LGBTQ, and then people who are like, we have people who are hard of hearing or deaf. And um, we always ask like, how can we be respectful and, and like, bring bring it in things to you so we it's always about having the conversations if you don't talk about the stuff that's present then you're really being silent to it and that's one of the things i think uh is really powerful about our groups is because we're just always focused about having it being intentional having a, the or answering the questions and having a, the hard difficult conversations yeah and it, it seems like whenever you're a part of a group where not everybody's exactly the same and people might have different viewpoints which it's okay to have different viewpoints. People might be coming from different backgrounds, have yeah. different color skin. Like that breeds more empathy between everybody and we're all human beings. And I think that that's really important to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I don't know everything. And there's a lot of things out there that I need to learn about too. And being exactly. around other people that can really teach teach you that. One of the most powerful things you can say is, I don't know, <laughs> but I'll, I'll work on finding out or seeing what I can learn. And that's the best thing because just con to continue to do the work like nobody. I mean, even as much as I know as a scientist, I know that there's a lot that I don't know. You know what I'm saying? And it's very like you have to come through from something like that. I don't care if you've been in the Olympics, if you won gold medals you're still not an expert on your given sport. You know what I'm saying? There's so much that goes on just beyond that. And that's why, like, I love, like, because to be honest, the groups that we run, that, I mean, in our group, we have people, we have people who, like, are in transition, you know, in housing transition, people who are, like, CEOs of companies. I mean, people who got huge bank accounts, people who might be, like, poor, lower middle class. Uh, it, it's so many walks of life. But hearing, like, running brings that together. You know what I'm saying? And we, we may not talk about a lot of that stuff, but in conversations, stuff like that will come up. And it's beautiful to just have those conversations and to learn more about the people that you're running with. And it's just not being afraid of doing that. Because, like, I mean, it just, it's just very important. I'm just surprised, like, uh, a lot of people don't have those conversations. Because, well, one, it is uncomfortable, but mm, that's the beauty. Just... Be, be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's like, that's running, <laughs> yeah. right? That's how we train. You have to, like, especially training for marathons, so many other things, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that people are afraid to say the wrong thing or they're afraid to offend. Um, but then if you're humble and the people that you're surrounding yourself with can just tell you in a respectful way that you made a mistake and that you can learn from that mistake, that I think that's important to learn how to talk about things. Exactly. I mean, think about it. I mean, I just think about it when we're running. Like, I didn't, I wasn't 
running really fast out the gate. So many things I didn't know. But then I started asking questions. Oh, wow. And it changed, totally changed, number one, how I became as a runner. And it's that simple. I think if you just apply what you've been doing in your sport to like your overall life, it can change everything. And again, but I think the, the key piece of it um, in, in regards to like race, people, it just it's hard, especially within this country, because there's so many different layers to it. And again, like I know my wife pushed the resource to me where um, uh, Resma, this is, he's like a trauma therapist. And um, a lot of stuff he talks about is just so powerful because there's so much trauma um, within families, within communities um, that needs to be addressed. And um, until we have those conversations, uh, it will just continue. How did you guys create an environment that invited all different types of people? Because a lot of times people just tend to flock to groups where everybody's like them and there isn't diversity in the groups. And it sounds like Harlem Run has a lot of different types of people there that you mentioned. So how did you create that environment to attract all different types of people? Man, I think the number one thing is authenticity. And it starts from the top. Like Allison started this whole thing and from the gate, from the get go, she was vulnerable. She was like, listen, I've been dealing with depression and anxiety. And until I really started addressing some of these things and going through therapy, you know, she would have been the same person. But then she started running and she started like changing her mindset. And she talks about a book that she read that really kind of helped change her mindset. But it all stemmed from going through depression and anxiety. And I think so many black and brown people in particular, but just people in general, don't they're not open about it. And so she started talking about that. And when, you, when somebody hears you talk about something that they're dealing with, it really just breaks down the walls. And so other people, I mean, so many people in our group have are now like, I mean, since the inception have been open. Yeah, I deal with depression, too, and anxiety and all these other things. And they're just open about it. And they're not afraid they're not shameful. There's no stigma around it. They're just like seeing somebody else talk about it, really show them that they can do it too and that they shouldn't be afraid. Yeah, I've been learning about communication a lot and leadership and authenticity and the type of people that are attracted to groups all tend to communicate the same way. So people who are really different from you in a communication standpoint it's hard to sort of be friends in some ways. So it's it's great that the people that you guys are surrounding yourself with and creating space for are people that are open and vulnerable and maybe open to different ideas. And I think that everybody ultimately wants to be that way, but it's, it's really hard to feel comfortable being vulnerable. So what have you learned about vulnerability and getting comfortable, like being, you know, saying things or talking about uncomfortable things? Well, one, and then you touched on communication. The funny thing you should say that, I remember earlier on when we started like growing our leadership team for Harlem Run, we did the whole like communication set. What is your communication style? And that was really powerful because we learned so much about each other and it made so much sense. And having done that exercise, we learned so much stuff about each other as leaders. And so I think, I know me personally, like, it changed the way we communicated. So we understand, we understood how somebody could receive something and then vice versa. So we did that. It's a simple exercise I think any group can do. When it comes to like vulnerability, I think it always started uh, at home. I mean, it took me a long time. Listen, I'm still learning to be a better communicator. 
because uh, the way I was raised, I bottled a lot of things up. I'm not, I was never a great communicator. Um, and then definitely like being with Allison, she's a great communicator. And that's one thing I've learned so much about communication through my relationship, um, through the relationships that I have, especially the relationship with my partner and my wife. I mean, we try to, we learn every day. I mean, and I don't always get it right. Neither of us, we always make mistakes, but then we pointed out the key thing is communication and learning and growing from it and not taking it personally. Like, yeah, I messed up. Dang, you know what? I'm sorry. And not just being, I'm sorry, but remind myself, I'm going to continue. And then when, and learning from it, you catch yourself before you do it. That is really the transformative piece. Like when you catch yourself and somebody no longer has to tell you and point it out, and so again, it just starts from your relationships. I, and and not yeah, if you're around people who communicate the same way, or if you're around people who are similar people like you, it'll just you'll continue to cycle. And that's why like I'm really grateful to be well, one, married and, and a part of married to a person who's a different communication style and I'm that I am, and we just continue to to like help each other grow. This is sort of a little bit of a side question, but I was thinking about the media and the news today and just the role that the media and news play in systemic racism, because the news will like make a group of people look good or bad based on not even based on fact, but just based on what's sensationalized because anxiety and fear are what sell. So like, what do you think that we can do as individuals? Because like, it's our choice if we want to read the news and we need to have some pick a pick a news site that has some sort of objectivity, but because of the internet, because of the conversations that we can have so rapidly, um, I feel like there's a way to dismantle the role of even media that isn't painting a a true picture. Um, So like, what do you think are some good ways to do that? Well, one, I think uh, it's like, we have to do our own research. You can't just rely. I mean, it's great having news sources and all these outlets to provide like quick information for us. But after you hear and see something, you need to dig deeper. Like, so whenever I see something, I take my time before I like actually believe it. I like to fact check. And that's just unfortunately the time that we live in right now. Cause there's so much stuff out there and it could like sidetrack from the real information. Like even people like, Oh God. I mean, even in science, when they, posted the stuff like the malaria medication, like, oh, this helps people. And it was the case that it was like five or six people or whatever. So if you didn't dig deeper and see that the number of people they tested on was like five or six, how does that make sense? You know? So you have to dig deeper, do more research, and then also have a historical context, right? Because it's not about just what this uh, piece of information is in this moment, but how does it relate to all this other stuff that happened before it? And that's where we have to be students of like whatever it is that we're, we're studying. And if you don't know, you should ask an expert. And that's usually the quickest thing. If you know somebody who's done the research, ask them. That's why like, yeah, I mean, whenever I have like things in, in regards to like therapy, thank God I go straight to my wife and vice versa. If she has like scientific stuff. She knows she can come and ask me because this is what I've been doing for a long period of time. And if it's something I may not know, I know who to point into contact with. And again, that's again, that's the whole network of relationships, knowing experts and connecting with them as opposed to only relying on these the news outlets and the media because they craft it one way and they, they do it for their own personal gain. And you've done Boston Marathon and 50 mile running races and you have 
some pretty impressive accomplishments and you're also like have is it credibility in wilderness outdoor therapy oh, or yep. like what is it emergency yeah i'm, yeah, I'm a i'm a, a wilderness first responder yeah sorry i was trying to find the words for that what is doing these really long races taught you about yourself and how have you used that to empower other people oh man like you need grit when you go through those long like when you go into hours and hours of being out on the trails or road or whatever it is, your mind starts playing games on you. And you really learn, I mean, well, I know me, I have this voices in your head and it's like, stop, why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, it's like, little, you should quit. But then you learn a lot about yourself. Like I, I know ways to pull myself, remind myself who I am. I have like, uh, I have so many mantras that I repeat. I have poems. I think about the things that I've been through. Um, so it's definitely not a grit. And, you know, yeah, I've been through so much um, that it just is a constant reminder that I could get through anything. And that's why I really enjoy it, because anytime you enter into like anything you've never done before with the ultra race, you never like finish it the same person. You learn something new about yourself. And I'm sure like you've traveled around the country, like around the world and done so many amazing things. Uh, that's the beauty of it when you get to do like ultras and all these amazing different activities and competitions. Uh, you get to meet amazing people. But I think the biggest part is you learn so much about yourself that you get to share that with other people because it just, it's like a small nugget of this world that people haven't explored before. And you get to share that with other people. Wow. And they may learn something from it. So it's great. Yeah. Growth definitely comes from struggle and a friend of mine today said do you remember all the races you've done and i actually thought to myself no i don't but the races i do remember the most are the ones where i struggled the most because those are the ones that have the most meaning to me so i think being able to apply that socially to where the world is right now understanding that growth will come from struggle but it's going to be hard and it also requires not quitting when it gets hard um, right. and those life lessons from endurance sports, man, <laughs> those things are so important. Yeah. Very important. I mean, it was still, I mean, they're timeless. So, I mean, it's what makes us who we are. Awesome. Well, I think it's time to bring Allison in. I love how when you're talking about her, like your face lights up, the tone of your voice changes ever so slightly. <laughs> like it's so, so cool to see that. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing when you have somebody who, uh, I mean, I could talk about it for days. She's a great friend. And that's the one thing I've learned in life. When you find somebody who's a great friend and you, like, you know, like, there's no, nothing you could go through. Like, uh, I mean, you can have your ups and downs, but you always move forward and know that you have each other. So I'm grateful for that to have her in my life. And where can people follow you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I use my Twitter every now and then. Uh, but also, I have my, everything is just Amir M. Figueroa. Also, that's my website, www.amirandfigaro.com. So, yeah, I'm always I'm into the outdoors, running, and uh, a lot of things. But, yeah, definitely follow me on Instagram. I use that a lot. And let's stay connected. Sweet. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for your flexibility. I've been looking forward to this and I had such a great conversation with Amir and I've listened to you on other podcasts as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm I'm a big fan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a fan of yours as well. I was, like I said, I was just looking through your Instagram and seeing some of the folks who you've interviewed. 
we feel honored to be on this podcast. So I'd love to talk about how you got into running specifically. Yeah. So growing up, I was really, um, I was an athlete. I, I ran track. I did soccer. I played basketball. I earned the nickname powdered feet from my father, which describes somebody so active. You don't see them just the footprints of where they've been in powder. <laughs> so super active growing up and then into high school and a little bit in college. But it wasn't until 2012 after graduating and um, being unable to find a job. And my father was really sick with Lewy body dementia all of those things, like I was very, very depressed. And I was looking, you know, spending a lot of time on social media as we do. And I saw a friend of mine who was training for a marathon. And he stuck out to me because he was this like average size black guy, not who I pictured running marathons. And so I like, I was like, this guy's never going to be able to run a marathon. <laughs> so of course, I started stalking his journey. And he did it. And he talked about how transformational the process was and all the friends he was making and just like how, how good he was feeling about himself. So a year later, I decided to sign up and run my first marathon. And that journey really changed my life. And when I look back at it, I'm like, I was so depressed. And I decided the antidote was running a marathon. It doesn't exactly make sense. But it is the experience that led me to where I am today. Yeah, and running is so incredibly powerful. I mentioned to Amir that I got into endurance sports through running as well and never found confidence in myself until I started running. Why yes. and I asked Amir this too, but like why is it why do you think that we find our way out of depression or we find ourselves through running or endurance sports? Yeah, so for me what I realized was that I was learning, so I was given a training plan and I was learning week by week how to take care of myself. Each week I was running further distances and sort of that mentality of if I set my mind to something, like if I have a plan and if I stick to it, I can accomplish something amazing, right? Like in our circles, everybody seems to be running marathons, but very few people actually run marathons in their lifetime. So it was just so amazing to me that step-by-step -step process, you know, like you're in it and you don't necessarily see the long term, but before you know it, you can accomplish something really great. And for me, I was able to apply that mentality to other pieces of my life and feel really good, like doing really difficult stuff and being able to accomplish it was such a boost to my ego and my sense of self. And the thing that I love that you said was that you saw somebody else running. And this this brings up the topic, and I, I want to interweave diversity into this discussion, but yeah. you saw a black guy running marathons and you're like, yeah, I can do that too. I want to do that too. And totally. And that is important to have other people that you can relate with and feel like, yeah, I belong here. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's that's the key piece, right? Like you got to see it to believe it. And this is why so many of us are fighting for representation, because I know for a fact that had he not looked the way he looked, had he not been another black person, that it wouldn't have hit home with me. Right. So it's important to have representation of folks across all the outdoor industries. Like we are out here doing these things. It's just that we don't often get the platforms or as much shine as other folks doing it. Yeah. And there's something you said in another podcast, and I don't know if it was more on the feminism side or the representation side, but it was something to the effect of there are certain rooms that we can't get in. So it's important to be the voice. If you are someone in those rooms to be that voice, to speak up for the people who might not be able to. Absolutely. Um, I think it's getting better because of all of the things happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, but to have the courage to speak up is super important. And it's part of 
like if you're a person like a white privileged person like you have it's your responsibility to speak up for the people that and, and or even like a white man like it's your job to speak up exactly exactly yeah i think i mean like a six cisgender heterosexual white man like they really need to look around every room and realize who's not there and bring folks in. And me as a, as a cis black woman, I'm always looking around and trying to identify who's not there. Why are they not there with running groups and running events that I host? I'm really conscious of that. I'm also conscious of my limitations and the fact that I'm not going to get everything right all the time. But I think it's really important to have that awareness and call those people in. If somebody asks you for the name of somebody for an opportunity or for a job, why not give that opportunity to, you know, a person of color or a black person? That's really the only way that will get in those rooms and get mentioned. Yeah. And I think that's something people worry about is the people that already have all the opportunities like, oh, well, what if this takes away from my opportunity? And it's so important for people to realize that, well, number one, it could, but that's not a bad thing. But number two, it's more likely to make the pie bigger and make it better for everybody. Yeah, yeah I think that's a thing. Right. And and so when you've been, you know, centered all the time and when you've gotten every single opportunity, when somebody else comes into that space, it automatically feels like a loss, of course, right? Because suddenly you're not the only person. But the idea is we're really just making the pie bigger. We're giving more people the opportunity to shine. And I truly believe like none of us is replaceable. Like as a white person, like there's a lot of value in what you bring to the table. So it's not like suddenly white people, we don't need you, right? It's just that historically white people have had all of the opportunities and now there's a chance to bring more of us in. So let's talk about Harlem Run. How did you start it and <laughs> how did you keep it going? Yeah. So I uh, completed my first marathon in June of 2012. And what was supposed to be just like a one undone experience, it kept haunting me. Right? I kept feeling like I had to run something else, which is very common for you know runners and endurance athletes. And a piece of me also really felt like I wanted to have more black folks um, at marathons when I showed up because I really did enjoy my experience. But I also felt like I was just one of the only people out there, particularly when I crossed the finish line and I was standing around. It seemed like where where all the black people? So I started Home and Run in November of 2013. It was freezing cold, and I thought there was going to be like not hundreds, but I thought some folks would show up because I knew how amazing running feels. But of course, nobody showed up. And for like the next several months, it was just like a few of my friends who would come and humor me and show <laughs> up. But for the most part, it was just me. And it was, I mean, it was really sad. Now that I look back, I'm like, would I still do something like that? Like, would I keep showing up for four months all by myself? And probably not. But thankfully I did. And one of those people who showed up was my now husband. And you'll get his side of the story on this too. But I had found him on social media. I was doing like all kinds of behind the scenes work. I was like, I had flyers. I was going to different stores. I was searching hashtags and I found that he was using We Run Harlem and I was using Harlem Run. And I was like, how could somebody in my own neighborhood <laughs> be doing the same thing as me? But very quickly we realized, you know, like there would be no need to compete. Like we both really believe deeply in sharing our experiences with running with other people. And so little by little we joined forces and, you know, within a year and a half of us coming together, we had over 150 people showing up for runs. And were most of the people showing up people of color? Yeah. Like I have to say that the very first person outside of my friends who showed up was this white woman, Krista, who now lives in the UK. 
But even like her showing up meant that I had a running group, right? Like I wasn't the only one and she was using her voice to bring other people in. But for the most part, it was black and brown folks in the community. And it was little by little, it became, I mean, before we got to 150 for sure, it became people who maybe had never considered themselves runners, who were looking for just a place to get started. And that was really important to both me and Amir. How do we make sure that people feel like they can show up just as they are, right? Like you don't have to be a a runner already. So we had a walking group, a run walking group. And I think that really contributes to the diversity. Yeah. And I've noticed like in sport, the labeling of quote, being an athlete or the labeling of quote, being a cyclist or a runner can be really intimidating to some people. And they're like, well, I'm not a runner because I don't run marathons or I don't do races. So I'm not a runner. Exactly. So within your group, like within Harlem Run, have you guys actually had like public conversations to attract people that may not call themselves an athlete or a runner to get them out? Absolutely. I think when you look at our social media, you very clearly see that we make sure that we showcase a diverse variety of people, like in terms of body size, in terms of pace, in terms of race, in terms of gender, because the idea is we want to make sure that folks can see themselves. And we, nonetheless, we still get that a lot, right? Like we have people who say that they had to train before (laughs) showing up with us, but we try to make sure that the message is clear. Come as you are, just show up. You will not be left behind. There's a pace group for you. So we're really intentional. And now my husband is is really leading the group as I take on other endeavors. But the language, the imagery, everything has been really intentional to do the best to show folks that it's a comfortable space for them. Yeah. So I guess that if people are listening and they're like, okay, well, I want to start a group, a club of some kind, the difference between starting a club versus starting like a social your group is for social change, really. Like it's not just about running and exercise. It's having that intentionality with messaging. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. And the thing is that I will say is that all of this evolves over time, right? So people often ask me like, how do I get started? Like, how did you know it was going to be successful? And like, I totally did not know. In fact, I showed up for four months by myself and, and can't believe where we've gone, right? But I think along the way, allow yourself... Um, allow yourself to change, to shift, to pivot, to be influenced by folks, to get information. Like for me, I I had a clear vision that I wanted this to be a space where people felt comfortable, but you know, I didn't know exactly what that looked like. And so this, this piece about social change and transformation was not necessarily like the very first thing that I thought of. So yeah, just allowing yourself some grace when you're creating stuff, knowing that you're not going to have the whole thing uh, lined up on day one. And something interesting that I've been thinking about with starting projects, like whether it be like a podcast or running group or a blog, like people start things and it sometimes it takes a while to get your first listener or your first follower or whatever. And you mentioned that you did it for like four months. But what about whenever you should walk away from something because it's not working? What what do you think about that? Yeah, there's this book that I read by I think his name is Seth Seth Godin, and it's about quitting. And the idea is that like we have a negative association with quitting. I actually really love seeing professional athletes like when they're running a race and they just like they they stop, they DQ, they decide they're not going on because they know their bodies and they know that the effort to continue might do themselves harm or that it's just not worth it on that day. And I think that's a really critical thing to know about yourself. And it takes takes a lot of conversations with yourself and self-awareness. Like not every road you go down is going to be 
of value is going to be worth it. Like as many successful things that I have, there are so many that I've had to quit in order to get to the successes. So what I try to think about is really always center my why. Like, why am I doing this? How would I feel if I were no longer doing this? And even if the thing is not yet successful, but I would feel like empty without doing it, then I'll keep doing it. And, you know, that's really, it it really is just a gut check. Like I said, this book, I can't remember the, the name of it. Like there's books and tools and way to tap into that side of yourself. But sometimes quitting is important and necessary for you to get to the next thing that will be hugely successful. Yeah, I think that that's a topic I need to do more reading and learning about. But like, there's all this talk about like hustle and don't give up and go for your dreams. But there are times where you do need to walk away. And knowing when that is, is is so, so hard. It's like with relationships. And like, of course, I'm not I've been in plenty of bad relationships. And like I said, I've made a ton of mistakes. But there comes a point where you're like, is this more damaging? Like, am I growing? Is this sustainable? Right? Like there's a series of questions that you can ask yourself. And that doesn't mean that once you quit it, you're going to be like, ah, I feel free. You're going to feel really shitty maybe. Right. Because this thing that was so much a part of you is now no longer there. But yeah, it's like, it's, it's a lot of self-development and, and ultimately trusting yourself. Like the decision that I make is the one that I'm going to stick with. You've done a lot of really important things for women, like you had the run for all women. And I'd love for you to talk about that. And just some of the other things you're doing, because man, you're doing like, you're a very strong female voice. And you're doing a lot. (laughs) Yeah, you know, this goes back to my nickname, right? Of like having powdered feet of doing all these things. My father was like clairvoyant, he could see the future based (laughs) on how I was. But so run for all women emerged after the 2016 election. And it started as like a small, crazy idea to organize a run from Harlem to Washington, D.C. for the Women's March and to raise $40,000 for Planned Parenthood. And it very quickly went viral. And I think because people at the time and still, you know, we you can feel very helpless. Like you can feel like there's so many massive issues to tackle. And like, so what? Like. I can't actually do anything about it, right? So I think a lot of people latched onto this idea of using running for social change, running to fundraise, running to send a message about the power of women and women's bodies, which is what the, you know, the current administration has done a lot to try to control women and reproductive rights. But so that first event, which ended up raising over $150,000 for Planned Parenthood, launched another movement where we really use running for social change and we've organized voter registration runs and raised funds for the midterm elections. And, you know, sometimes when I look back at what I've done, first of all, I haven't done any of this alone. Like I've had like incredible support from my partner and then incredible collaborations and co-leaders who helped me with this stuff. But I think it's a matter of knowing my why and and failing fast, right? And this goes back to quitting. When something isn't working, like, okay, can you pivot? Can you keep it moving? Do you need to abandon it or what, right? And the more you do these things, the more muscle memory you develop. So this is a question I've been trying to figure out for myself as I have a new son. And how old is Corey, your son? He's, he's 11 months old tomorrow, actually. Wow, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about like masculinity and femininity and like each person, man or woman has elements of each one of those things within them. And I'm still not even really sure like how to define what is masculine and what is feminine. But with my son, I'm trying to think of 
what do I want to model for him? And what does his father want to model of like, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be masculine and feminine and really embrace those parts of yourself? Have you thought about that for Corey? Yeah, for me, I'm thinking in different terms, I'm thinking more expansive terms, I'd say. So I think a lot about gender being a construct. If a baby is born, we see that they have certain genitalia and we say that they're a boy, right? But then think of like how heavy that is, right? So now this little person who knows nothing about the world has all of this boyness put on top of him, right? And then I'm projecting all of this boyness because then he's supposed to be a man. And I think it can be really limiting to your point, because I think that within each of us, we have all these types of being and feelings that we have called male uh, men and women, right? So I think for my son, to the best that I can, I want to just push him in the direction of things he likes, right? You know, if he's going towards something, I want to try to limit, which might be like a gut reaction because I've been socialized in this world of gender constructs, but like limit my reaction if he does something girly, quote unquote, and plays with dolls. Like, what does it really matter to me whether my son is playing with dolls or not, right? So just trying to be more expansive in my own ideas about gender. And my hopes for my son are that he is really happy and self-assured and lives a very long life. And I think Corey will reveal himself to me. But that's what I'm working on. And it's, and it's difficult because we very much live in a world that is gender binary and that has these idea about like what a man and what a woman should look like. So it's kind of a daily practice for me. And I'm, I'm excited that my son is going to be my teacher in that way. Yeah, me too. And just things that we think about, like even language that they use as they get older, when they go start going to school and they start seeing other kids. And if a kid says, like, if I hear him say, oh, you throw like a girl to somebody or like, exactly. oh, you're crying, you're a wimp. Like exactly. th- those, those things, I think there's a lot more discussion about that, about it. it's okay to be a man and be vulnerable. Like those are not exactly. mutual exclusive things. And it's okay exactly. to be like a female and be like driven and in sports and like all those things. Aggressive, that, assertive, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think we do such a disservice to especially young people, when we tell them, oh my God, you're acting in a way that somebody like you shouldn't act. And then they're like, but this is how I feel, <laughs> right? So you and I are both going to have an uphill battle, obviously, because we're only around our kids for but so long. But yeah, I think it's just going to be really important messaging for whoever is around my son, like inner circle outside of school to make sure that he feels okay being his full self. Yeah. And also like growing up as a person of color for him in different communities, like what, how are you going to sort of lead him through that? Yeah. So that's like really terrifying, but I'm, you know, one of the resources that I look to often is the conscious kid and my son is, you know, still too young to, well, who knows? He probably understands a lot more than we think. Uh, One Mm -hmm. thing that I've been really intentional about is making sure that his books and you know, whatever he does watch, he doesn't watch many things, have diverse people, you know, diverse images, because I think that's really important. Like at a young age, I, I don't remember clearly, but I do know that all of my dolls, all of my books, all the shows that I watched were just white people, white little boys and girls. And that definitely has an impact on your psyche. So thinking about, you know, diversity being a key piece of his upbringing, and then having conversations with him about how incredible he is as a human being, but how other people are going to see him maybe as a threat. Other people are going to see him and think bad things about him. 
So how do I make sure that he has space to express his feelings about that and not, you know, God forbid, not kill himself? Because that's something that I don't think was really as much of an issue when I was in like elementary school and middle middle school. But there are like little babies killing themselves because of what other people say about them. So, you know, it's just another layer of, of being a mother. And I hope that at the same time as I'm teaching my son these lessons, that society is also changing and that he has an opportunity to not be seen as a dangerous person when he's just out for a run. And you got your master's degree, was it from Columbia University? And is it in psychology, counseling? So I, I actually I have two masters, both from Columbia. Oh, one only is from- two master's degrees. <laughs> Jeez, you slacker. <laughs> I know. I mean, if there's one thing I could do with school, like sometimes I'm like, maybe I should just go back. <laughs> <laughs> one more. But, uh, exactly. <laughs> Um, the master's in Latin American and Caribbean studies. And I was specifically looking at issues of identity at the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, which is like a whole other podcast. But, um, and then I got my second master's in counseling psychology. My goal was to become a therapist and I, I started practicing, but then becoming a mother made it difficult for me to get like the hours that I needed. And I realized that I can still have this work be an important part of my life without the license. Mm hmm. So in terms of like leadership, because you're a lot, I mean, you're a leader. When I look at you and I read the things that you are doing or listen, you're a leader. And so how have you applied some of those things you've learned with your master's degree? Because you have to understand the psychology of, of people and how to inspire yeah. them to make change. So as a leader, how are, how are you applying that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think for me, what I realized, like what my master's in counseling really showed me is that it's important to invest in people, right? Like if you're building something, you can't build it alone. And that I learned just through building Harlem Run. But when you invest in people, you understand what they're really passionate about. And then you give them the opportunity to pursue that passion and just like sort of step away. That's when things work best. Like there's nothing worse than having a manager who's like, did you get that thing done? Like, what are you doing now? Can you send me, (laughs) can you send me an end of day email? It's like, dude, like I know my job, let me do my job, right? So I think it's understanding people. And then the really hard part is like letting go, right? Like recognizing that I don't, thankfully I'm not a doctor. I'm not in the business of like saving people's lives. So if something doesn't go the way I would have liked it, if something doesn't go according to plan, like it's okay nobody's going to die. But that is a very, very difficult thing to learn. And I think it's it's a practice. Like it's still something that I'm practicing. And I would actually argue that you are saving people's lives, not like a doctor would be doing it, but all the work that you're doing, you actually are doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, you've done an incredible job raising money. And I noticed like with all the things happening this year, people are doing more things to raise money and that's something that I, I'll call myself out on. I'm not very good at that. I'm not, I feel uncomfortable asking people for money. I feel uncomfortable like saying donate to this cause. Um, totally. And I'm sure other people listening are the same way, but I don't want to be that way. What, yeah. are, what are some things that you've done to help you raise all this money for all these amazing causes? Yeah. So first I want to say like, there's a part of me that still feels the same way. Right. And I think it has to do with the way that we're socialized, particularly as women to have this sort of like shame around money and shame around asking and just in general asking for what we want. So I think honestly, it's easier for me to ask for money for 
other causes and people than for myself. Like knock on wood, if ever I were to need money for myself, like I just wouldn't have it right? because it would be very difficult for me to center myself. But I think a lot about how the impact of that money, right? Like how this money, this currency will be transformational in the kind of change that I want to see. So if I can remove my own stuff and my own ego out of it, like, oh, I'm so embarrassed or I don't want to keep asking and recognize that the money can really be powerful for the people who it will serve. That helps me. But again, like anything else, the more you do it, like the more comfortable you are with it. Okay. And to wrap it up, uh, you just did, you have your own, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately. You've been working on like a summit. Meaning through movement. So it's, um, it was initially supposed to be a six city in-person tour, bringing conversations about mental health, to the fitness world, along with introducing people and providing spaces for people to work out, run, yoga. But now it's completely virtual. So we've had three events and there are six on the horizon. And are they free? Yeah. So the five out of the six remaining are free. There's one that costs $10. It's going to be an amazing session with Dr. Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to this and race, conversations of race, talking about whiteness and identity makes you uncomfortable, then you definitely want to sign up for this. And if $10 is an obstacle, we have plenty of scholarships available. But all the other sessions are free. And I mean, it's we're tackling things like intergenerational trauma, privilege, healthy body and healthy mind. We'll be talking with Stephanie, I always forget if it's Stephanie Bruce or Stephanie Rothstein, but everybody knows Stephanie. <laughs> She'll be on. And it's been so fun so far. And, and I was worried about what it would be like virtually, but you can still get the same energy and conversation. All right. And that's called Meaning Through Movement. And you just had yeah. one come out. Um, that's I, I, I really want to listen to it. It's called Let's Talk About Whiteness. And I can't wait yes. to check that out. So thanks for that work that you're doing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I can't wait for you to check it out. Where can people find you and all the incredible things you're doing? So you can find me everywhere. Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N, M as in Mary, Desir. That's Instagram, Facebook, uh, my website, Twitter. And then from there, you can go, you can be led to Meeting Through Movement, to Run for All Women, Harlem Run. And that's it. I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. You're incredible. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you so much for listening. And make sure you go check out today's guests on Instagram, Allison Desir and Amir Figueroa. Their websites are linked up in the show notes. And if you are in New York, go join Harlem Run and join them for a run. I know that next time I'm going to be in town. I don't know when that's going to be with how the world is right now. But next time I'm in New York, I'm definitely going for a run with those guys. I learned a lot from this podcast. And it's just the tip of the iceberg in my personal journey about learning about privilege and white supremacy and systemic racism. And it really has been a lot. There's a lot of things I didn't know about. And it's humbling to think that I've been kind of going along my life ignorant to things that have been happening around me and happening to people. So I'm excited that the veil has been lifted and I encourage you to do the same thing. Thanks again for listening and for being part of my community. I'm with you on this journey of growth and adventure and our mission to be better every day. See you next week.